Welcome back to Poets and Lunatics. This is our DIY episode, our filmmaking guerrilla style, which what we mean by guerrilla style is the classic filmmaker with a camera out there on the streets, pushing people aside or pushing them in front of the camera, doing whatever it takes to get the perfect shot outside of the studio system, outside of all the money that goes with the big budget productions, but going out there and still trying to make the film and live the dream. Uh, and I've definitely been on the side of that on the side of that coin. And my guest here today, Carlos de la Vega, has done that as well. Carlos, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. No, well, thank you. It's an honor, James. And uh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, Carlos here has been working in Hollywood for many years. He's shot his own pilot, What's Up in L.A., as well as uh, several feature films uh, out of, outside of the country, even, and music videos, and has done a lot of work with uh, visual effects and all that sort of uh, graphic supervisor, and, uh, and I'm really honored to have him on board. So, Carlos, again, thank you. Thank you, James. So let's go over a little bit of history of DIY, where this came from, how it started out, and uh, because in the beginning, it was... Filming was pretty much exclusively inside the studio system in Los Angeles. But around, I think it was like the 50s or 60s, we started to see something different pop up in France. Yes. The new wave. And, you know, there was like Jean-Luc Godard, Francois Truffaut, even Jean Renoir to a little bit to effect. But the big kind of seminal moment is Breathless, where you, there's basically Jean-Luc Godard, a director who's crazy, decides... I'm going to go out and make a film. I don't have any money, and I don't have a script, and I don't have anything, but I've got a couple actor friends, and we're going to go out and do this. And it hits big. It even makes it to the United States. And there's all these other French directors that are going out there saying, okay, well, we can do this now, and we're going to do it differently than Hollywood does it, and it still works. I, have you seen any of those, like uh, the 400 Blows or uh, the Breathless or anything like that? Actually, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of watching all those you know, films from way back. But one thing I do know from reading film history is what set it apart was in the studio system in Hollywood, they always had the camera on tripods or mm -hmm. they had it in dollies. This is the first time that anyone took it out of the tripod mm -hmm. and had it handheld. So it was, at that time, right now, handheld is, is common. But back in the 50s, like no one was shooting handheld. So I think that was a technique back then that was revolutionary yeah it was a technique i think there was i remember seeing in in the 30s or 40s there was this one film with humphrey bogart where they used a handheld camera as kind of like a it, just to show a perspective shot where somebody was just looking around sort of thing and it was really used to not great effect it was kind of like 3d sort of thing where oh you're putting they they tried to market it as oh you're actually in the film <laughs> sort of thing and it, it it wasn't used as a method of storytelling that are used to an advantage like um uh the directors in the french new wave did and it's, it's great that you bring up they use their limitations to tell a different yeah, brand of story. And that's something that we're going to see all the time in all these DIY projects. Yeah, exactly. That's, a, that's a main, one of the main points of uh, do-it-yourself guerrilla filmmaking is you're using your disadvantages to your advantages. But, the, you know, it, in the United States, that really didn't pop up until, until really the 90s, yeah. that, that sort of DIY mentality. I mean, Tarantino used... A lot of DIY, you could say, to Reservoir Dogs. I think that when, when was that in the eighties or oh, that's a what's well, okay. It's around there some way. <laughs> early nineties, early nineties. I think I think it was ninety one or ninety two. Okay. Because I do remember reading, um, you know, Robert Rodriguez, another 
uh, great example of a great director who's a do-it-yourself DIY. Um, he and Tarantino are good buddies, and I think it was around 92, 93. There you go. I mean, and that was, again, using his limitations to his advantage, creating a stifling sort of thriller in one room where you couldn't get out. And you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who's going to walk through that door next. It's amazing. It's great. Uh, you know, 12 Angry Men in the uh, studio system did something similar to that, except what Tarantino did is he made a style out of it. And you could see that other people, other directors like Steven Soderbergh or um, Clerks was uh, Kevin, Kevin Smith. Smith. Yes. It, it's, it's, it's a real phenomenon in the 90s was the DIY, the guerrilla filmmaking style. Yeah, that really that really blossomed in the '90s, and and it inspired a whole new wave, a generation of filmmakers. And one thing, uh, most of those filmmakers, if you look, uh, the Kevin Smith, the Tarantino, the Rodriguez, the T Steven Soderbergh, I believe a lot of their films were actually picked up and distributed by Miramax, and that's where Miramax around that time they came and they became huge mm -hmm. by investing in these young filmmakers who who were guerrilla filmmakers DIY. They just invested in them, and Miramax exploded, you mm -hmm. know, and it, it paid off for them. It's brilliant. Uh, they, had, they didn't have a library. And I remember Weinstein, reading an interview about Weinstein where he's talking about he is one of the indie studios, and they have no library of films to draw from. And so what does he do? Without much money, he goes out and he invests and gets these guys that can make films for almost nothing. And he gets a library out of that and now Miramax is huge and now the Weinstein company is one of the most profitable film companies film studios out there one of the minor majors the true uh, one of the only true really minor major out there as far as studios um, but tell me what is one little uh, example of a film that really affected you as far as DIY by far has to be uh, Robert Rodriguez El Mariachi <laughs> ah that was a great one yeah it was he made it I believe he made it in was it, I don't remember, 91 or 93. I don't remember the exact year he made it. But I didn't watch it until 2001. So I pretty much saw it almost 10 years later. But it was that film that just really, the rawness, it was so raw how he shot it. But the editing, you know, the editing, the style, the dialogue, it really captivated me and really propelled me to get into filmmaking. And that was, I guess, the ignition um, for me to get into filmmaking. Mm, that's awesome, man. And I, that, that film was also an important thing for me as well. It was, it was, uh, he went to my school, my film school. And <laughs> you so, see. yeah, everybody, everybody like held him up to this high on this high pedestal oh robert rodriguez robert rodriguez you know <laughs> and and my mentor uh charles uh professor charles ramirezberg back at, at ut um was the mentor for uh robert rodriguez and he was the one that believed in robert rodriguez when no one else did for crying out loud we didn't want to let him into our film school he was going mm -hmm. he was going to ut and we didn't let him in that goes mm -hmm. to show how much we know at ut i guess but in any case it was it was huge for us. Huge. He was like big man on campus as far as we're <laughs> concerned, even though I never actually saw him on campus. <laughs> but how, how exactly do you know, how did he make it? Like what, what did Robert Rodriguez do to make El Mariachi? Well, what Robert Rodriguez did, he, 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 I believe it was $7,000. He made El Mariachi for $7,000. But what he did was he didn't have a camera, so he borrowed a camera, a film camera. We're not talking about digital cameras. Now everyone uses digital cameras. You know, you have a camera on your phone. But back then, it was hard to get a hold of a film camera. 
So he borrowed a film camera from a friend at, at UT. And he and his buddy, um, his buddy lived, I think his name is Carlos, I forgot his last name, but his friend lived in a border town in Mexico. So they're like, let's borrow a film camera. Let's go down to your, 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 the town that, he, that his friend lives in, lives in in Mexico and let's just shoot a film around what we have. Basically, they had a guitar case, a guitar, a guitar case, a turtle, a film camera, and a town. So they used what they had, the elements that they had, and they built a story around that. Mm-hmm. So they built this action movie in this border town. His best friend at that time played the lead role. And he, I believe that he edited it on video. So he oh. didn't actually, he didn't get a film print. I mean, no, he didn't. Yeah, he edited it on video. So he mm-hmm. saved a lot of money. And then he went to Hollywood, shopped it around, and and all of a sudden, every Hollywood executive was like, what is this? This is an amazing foreign film, action film. They'd never seen anything like that before, and that's what really propelled him into into Hollywood. Using what he had. What he had. Very, and But it was, it's really stylish as well. I mean, I, I love how <laughs> it's it's kind of become legendary on campus like everyone has their own version for how he got the money like the seven thousand dollars oh yeah he went to the he, he uh what the drug testing center yeah some people said he was giving blood at blood at a drug testing center other people say he uh his short film i think it was uh bedhead bed, bed, bed yeah, yeah bedhead he got some prizes some film money prizes he for wrote that. in his book so robert rodriguez wrote a book called rebel without a crew and it's basically a journal of of his experience making El Mariachi, like pre-production, how he got the idea, the fundraising. He actually, he I think he got a couple thousand dollars by staying in this medical research laboratory. They they it's basically it's a lab where they test healthy young men for new drugs, and <laughs> they pay them for the inconvenience. So it was a month long study, and he was there, and for him it was like it's perfect. I'm getting like three thousand dollars. Um, and I'm staying there, I'm interning there, and I have all this time to write the script for El Mariachi. So it was there during that time that he wrote the script for El Mariachi. He got half of the money, half of the, half of the funds um, that he used to make the, the film. But it's all outlined in his book. It's a really great book, and it chronicles his journey from um, basically coming up with the story of El Mariachi, making El Mariachi, all his, basically his struggles, and then afterwards his journey into Hollywood, going into L.A., um, uh, pitching it to all the different Hollywood executives, getting an agent, and then making uh, El Mariachi, remaking El Mariachi. Not remaking it, but uh, but the film studios wanted to release it theatrically, which for him, he never thought it would happen. Yeah. So it's a very interesting book. Yeah. That's that's every, every artist's dream, you know? Take Hollywood by storm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, it's also it's a brilliant piece of filmmaking because it's an action film. And it that's is. How how do you make an action film on such a small budget like that? It's easy. And if if you guys ever have the chance, buy buy the DVD of El Mariachi because in it, he Robert Rodriguez as a bonus he added on the special features he added the the Robert Rodriguez Ten Minute Film School, which he shows a lot of the. You know, the, you know, do-it-yourself guerrilla filmmaking techniques that he implemented in the film. And one of the things that he outlined was basically it's an action movie. How many times, how many different shots do I need of a guy running across the street or going up the stairs? He's like one time or mm-hmm. at most two times. You know, so we moved, he moved very quickly because it was an action film. 
you know, he didn't have to shoot, take a lot of takes mm-hmm. because, like, he, for him, like, okay, I got the guy coming in you know, running across the street. I'll get a wide angle. That's good. Then maybe I'll get it at a different angle, a close-up. That's good. You know, further down the road, and that's how he goes. So he doesn't – he shoots very quickly and very efficiently. Mm-hmm. Just keeps on moving. But what about those special effects and things like that? Like, how do you – like explosions and gunfire and things like that. Well, that I, he did use squibs. Mm-hmm. He did use squibs, and I and I remember he, he was. Uh, they didn't they didn't have prop guns, so they used the squibs on real guns, and it would it would get jammed. The magazine would get jammed, so they could only fire once. So what he did is in in the editing process, I think he doubled up the mach- like let's say the machine gun, you know, going off. He doubled, you know, he made a double cut, like mm-hmm. he showed it twice. Then he'd cut to a different angle, like maybe the guy getting shot. Then he cut back again to the same or a different angle, and he doubled it up again. So he was very clever in the editing, how he was able to to make those you know practical effects come alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. I remember uh, Professor Charles Ramirezberg back at UT telling me he was like, yeah, he told all the students actually. Um, when Robert first told me that he was going to go out and make a film for the money that he had, <laughs> I, w- I almost was going to say, yeah, you're not going to be able to do that because nobody's able to make a watchable film, especially a watchable action film at the time, for that kind of money. But I said, go ahead, go for it, is what Charles Ramirezberg said, and look what happened. Robert Rodriguez did it. And I think it's easier even now. If Robert can do it, I think... We can do it even more. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have totally. We have the technology. I mean, this was 93, 92, 93. And we're, what, 2016. And the technology, we have everything is on digital. I mean, you can, you can, shoot, your, you can shoot a movie on your iPhone and edit it on iMovie, you know, and mm-hmm. put, put effects on there very easily. Uh, so it's, it's, it's basically you have a film studio in your hands. It's fascinating. And I love... I mean, you, After Effects is such a beautiful thing for all the special effects. Oh yeah, no, After Effects is it's a beast. It's one of my favorite software. You can do, you can do visual effects. You can do motion graphics. It's by far uh, one of the best softwares ever created, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, Adobe Premiere, uh, Adobe yeah, not After Premiere, effects. Adobe After Effects. Thank you, Adobe. You know, a film that really um, uh, had a kind of similar sort of inspiration to me was Chris Nolan's The Following. That was, I, he really embodied that idea of seeing a limitation and embracing it and making it a style. Um, the following was shot, I think, on a budget of like $6,000, $7,000 in London. And uh, he had, he shot it on film, uh, of course, because at the time there wasn't digital. And he was able to create a style through... Um, shooting in black and white because he knew he didn't have production value enough to control the colors and so he just all black and white harsh lighting because he had them all stand in front of a window with a setting sun sort of thing like he used almost all natural lighting he had a couple of different little lighting kits where he was able to just shine light directly on them basically and so it created a film noir Mm. sort of thing and a film noir is sort of that gangster very dark very moody sort of film that came out in the 30s and 40s through the studio system and he's able to recreate it by embracing his limitations and this the script itself is is classic chris nolan you know where he's jumping around in time back and forth and disjointing everything 
Um, and so his script really lent itself to how he shot it because he shot it on a period of two weekend, uh, not uh, two days each week on the weekend. On the weekends, yeah. For a space of a year. A year, yeah. That's crazy. I that's, know. That's perseverance. I, it's, I, the thing that I don't. Uh, okay, for one semester in college, I convinced a group of actors to come out for each semester, uh, three days, basically Friday night, Sunday, uh, Saturday, and Sunday. On, and we would shoot all Friday night, all Saturday, all Sunday. Well, not in the morning. I went to church in the morning. But <laughs> we would shoot, and I convinced them to do it. And at the end of that semester, they were so tired of coming out to shoot. <laughs> I mean, it was a, ton, it was a blast. We were shooting uh, the only narrative uh, show, the only narrative 30-minute-long show on the two TV station, uh, Texas Student Television. And we, we I enjoyed it a ton, but... I don't see how how Chris Nolan was able to pull that out for a whole year. <laughs> I mean, and the I, actors too. I mean, yeah. God bless those actors that they believed in him, you know, they to did. come out for a year. I mean, one thing is you're the director; it's your vision, it's your baby. Yeah. You know, you're yeah. gonna do it. But the actors, they really had to believe in him to come out. Like, let's say this is like the eleventh month. Eleven month. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm tired of coming every weekend, you know, to do this. But yeah, you know, he almost didn't make it though. He. uh <laughs> Um, the main actor came to him and said, look, I'm done. I'm moving to Australia and you got to finish this because I'm leaving. And so he was going to take an extra couple of months, but he, in his head, figured out how he could make it work in like two more weeks and finish it up. (laughs) And so it was that close. Like even, even Chris Nolan didn't have that quite much of a pull to keep his main actor from going to Australia. Or maybe that's what drove him to Australia. Working there for that long. But I, I, something that I really would love to talk about is the artistic value of something like an El Mariachi or a follow, the following. Um, did, how do you value something as a piece of art that's made DIY like that, that sort of guerrilla style? Like, what, is there artistic merit in El Mariachi? Definitely. And uh, art is art. You know, regardless how it's made. When it comes to films, I, I don't look at I don't look at it how much for how much was it made. You know, I value a film for how much it entertained me, how much it captivated uh, my imagination and my emotions. So it could be made for a hundred dollars, or it could be made for a million dollars, a hundred million dollars, if if it really captivated me. You mm-hmm. know, and that's how I give it value. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how did El Mariachi do that? The directing, the editing, you know, it was something that I had never seen before. And then going afterwards and, and finding out that, oh, it was Robert Rodriguez who made Desperado. He made this film. And then realizing, um, not realizing, but reading how he made it and and just him inspiring other young filmmakers that, hey, you can do it too. Mm-hmm. You know, put so much more value into it for me what was it about the story what was it about the action that really said okay this is art to you this is and not just art well i think art by its definition is probably all good art if it really is truly art so how was this art like what what about the story what about was it character development what what for was sure it, it, was just, it was a story you know it was a simple story but it was well well executed you know it's a story about this young man who wanted to be a musician, mm-hmm. you know, he had dreams and, and he got confused, you know, with this other guy who was, a who was, a, who was, um, a hitman. 
But it was a story, you know, and the way that he shot it, the editing, you know, had it had action, had a little bit of humor, it had a little bit of drama, a little bit of romance. Mm-hmm. So he had a little bit of everything. And and I think it was a really, it was a well, it was a good story. It was a simple story, but I think he executed very well with with the cinematography, mm-hmm. with especially the editing. And it had it was something that you you know when I saw it, I was like, wait a minute, this is not a traditional Hollywood movie that I've seen in the past. It had the elements of it, but it was very raw. And mm. I think that rawness is what attracted to me. Mm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And it, I think something that directors really strive for is the connection with the audience. We all have this great longing to be able to see something in our head, communicate it to someone who watches our film and have it resonate on a personal level exactly. to some degree that it resonated in its inception in our own minds, in our own hearts. And what El Mariachi, it sounds like, did for you is you as a young man were watching this and you realized that this this man, this Mariachi's dream, this, this character's dream of going out there to try and be a musician and, but you were also probably able to connect it to the um, dream that Robert Rodriguez had as being a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And then that connects to your dream as exactly. a filmmaker. Exactly. It, it, there's lots of, uh, I guess, parallel, <laughs> parallelism, yeah. you know, on multiple levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's something similar to me with the watching the following. I mean, I, I watched El Mariachi as well. I mm. love that film. But... Um, it didn't quite connect like the following did. Um, I think sometimes filmmakers take, especially people like me who might take themselves too seriously, which I hate when I do that, um, try to say something in their films that's too grandiose. And they, they really just, they're just trying to go out there and it becomes more of a propaganda piece than a piece of art. Mm -hmm. And, um, the following didn't try and do that. El Mariachi didn't try and do that. The following, but it, you could tell it was made by a very intelligent man who was not trying to convince me of a point, no matter how intelligent he was. He was telling a story about a character who was very dissatisfied with who he was and what he did. And a man need, I mean, his identity is confirmed by what he does in a lot of different ways. Um, we need to establish ourselves in the field so in order to be able to be at peace with ourselves mm-hmm. and a lot uh, and it might be a shortcoming but it's still something that's written in our hearts at least my heart and soul to to have that and to see this man out there who is this f- filled with angst and just decides i'm going to go out there and follow people and see what they do because he just doesn't he just doesn't, he does not, he's not happy with who he is as a person, so he wants to go out and see what other people do. He thinks of himself as a writer, and so he's going to go out and just observe other people. And I remember listening to an interview with Chris Nolan, and he was saying how this was a reflection of how he felt at the time. Mm. He felt very unequal to the task of, uh, of what he wanted to do as filmmaking, as a writer, as speaking to uh, um, the whole world through the medium of film. And, you know, that's something that filmmaker me wants to do and uh, definitely feels unequal to do in a lot of different ways. And the connection that I was able to make with the following was the embodiment of true art for me in film, the connection of that it 
recognizes that we have some sort of image or idea and I'm able to place it and make mm. you feel something. Mm. And not that I, uh, and as a filmmaker, not that I'm forcing you, I'm, I'm inviting you, but the fact that you take my invitation and you connect with it. Mm -hmm. The following did that to mm -hmm. me. And uh, that's, that just goes to show that you don't have to put a price tag on art, on film. Mm -hmm. What is uh, some of the things that uh, you might have used in some of your feature films, like Los Gallos, Los Gallos No Lloran? Tell me about how, how did you use DIY? And Los Gallos was his for your first feature that you shot yes. in Latin America as well, and yes. a, and an action film. <laughs> yes. Sounds a little bit familiar to me. Yes, it was. Uh, so Los Gallos No Lloran, it was shot in my home country, Nicaragua, in Central America. And I just took a lot of the same principles that Robert, Robert Rodriguez used. You know, we had a small town, you know, where my grandparents lived, where my cousin lived. Uh, we had a camera and we had friends who we recruited as actors who are actors, but we recruited them and forced them. <laughs> Some of them, we forced them to become actors. Uh, my uncle was a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> he did a really good job, by the way. I loved his, his work. Oh, thank you. Yeah, he, he yeah, he, he's he's a he's funny because if you meet him in real life, he's opposite, the complete opposite of the of the character that he played. But uh, we, yeah, we we used what we had available for us. You know, we had we had a small town. Uh, we had an hacienda. My grandparents had an hacienda. We used that. We had a pool. We used the pool. So we basically used the elements that we had, and we constructed a little action film around elements that we had instead of going out and 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 um finding locations or instead of you know creating this this um really complex script with many locations it was like no let's just write a script around what we have and that was one of the main things that robert rodriguez did in in el mariachi mm -hmm. he embraced the limitations but something i'm seeing that is a constant is well robert rodriguez went to a border town uh, between Mexico and the U.S., uh, Chris Nolan lived in one of the busiest, biggest cities, most interesting places on earth, London, and you went down to Nicaragua. I mean, places that people have want might want to see, might want to go. They have interesting locales in which to shoot in. I mean, yours was full of all all sorts of vistas that were just gorgeous. Yeah, Nicaragua was a beautiful country, and definitely that was one of the main reasons to go down there. To take advantage of those beautiful landscapes that the country has to offer and that's production value yeah. you know we know like where can you go um here in the united states you might have to fly to a different state but you go down to nicaragua my family lives down there my relatives lives down there you know you have all that beautiful nature landscape yeah. free to use yeah. at any time and that's that's production value yeah you know that you can get for free so like you said embracing the limitations yeah yeah but kind of seeing where your strengths lie like if you have not everybody has a city like that they can go to where their family members have a hacienda but you did and the other people who want to be filmmakers you know an advice that i would give them is see what you have to work with and work with it exactly exactly like maybe you don't have like i was fortunate enough that you know my grandparents had an hacienda they lived in this little amazing you know small town that had beautiful landscape but let's say you you know your your mom works you, your mom works as a nurse maybe do a film around 
where your mom works, you know, as a nurse or, you know, whatever you have available to you is what mm-hmm. you can use and write the script around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember for the extrovert, we uh, had <laughs> it popped up thank, by the grace of God. We had access to a nursing school and it was all about someone in a hospital. And so there you go. So almost everything took place in one little hospital ward, uh, which which was actually a nursing school, and it it it, it works. <laughs> but not everybody has a nursing school that they can shoot at. Not everyone has a hacienda. But most filmmakers have something that's visually interesting that they can use and craft a story around. And that's something that really is needed if you're going to go out there and do the crazy life of being a filmmaker. A filmmaker needs to see the extraordinary in the ordinary mm-hmm. so um if you can see special things are extraordinary and something very simple that no one else is no one else sees mm-hmm. then you got a story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know like for example if if um like you said uh you wrote the extra you know you did the extrovert you had a you, you had a location of a nursing home you know nursing home right nursing school nursing school sorry there's a nursing home. I'm like, no, it's a para viejito. <laughs> close enough. Close enough. <laughs> Very different movie, but close enough. <laughs> but it's uh, seeing the ordinary, it's seeing the extraordinary in the ordinary. That's that kind of ties us into what we were talking about last semester, uh, last episode. We talked about G.K. Chesterton and how he looked at the eyes of the world with wonder every time, seeing a tree as if it was the first time he saw it for the majesty that it was. Uh, majesty that it would be for someone who's never seen a tree before or a flower or things like that yeah the filmmaker is tasked with presenting that or with finding that because in the end he has to present that to the audience that new perspective that new look well good luck i hope that we can continue to be making that those in these new presentations to the audience for sure for sure and one i think a key and just recapping on what really captivate, captivated all those filmmakers in the 90s, you know, mm-hmm. the Tarantino, the Rodriguez, the Steven Soderbergh, uh, Kevin Smith, was that you can see from watching their films that they had fun. Mm. And at the end of the day, if you're a filmmaker, it's because you want to make films and have fun. Absolutely. If you're not having fun, there's, there's, no, there's no reason to do films. You're doing it because you want to have fun. I'm so glad you said that. I feel okay. I remember saying that when I th- I shot my thesis film uh, back in at UT. I was like, "Yeah, I know we're all out here to have fun. That's why we're here." Exactly. And I remember my whole crew was like, "What?" I was like, "Wait, <laughs> you guys don't believe this?" I was like, "This is why I'm here because I'm having a blast." If you're not having fun as a filmmaker, this is like the wrong career. Because it's too hard. If you have to love it so much that you're having fun doing yeah, it, you're gonna have so many obstacles. Um, you know, just during the shooting and the editing, it, it, there's so many obstacles. It's hard. It's mm-hmm. not easy. But if you're having fun, it's going to push you all the way through to finish it, to, mm-hmm. to its completion. I love it. I love it. Well, I hope that uh, maybe you and I can have fun together out there sometime, For Carlos. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I look forward to that. Well, thanks again for coming. And how do people find out uh, more about you? Very simple. Uh, people can go to my YouTube channel. Is youtube.com/cm de la vega. 
Very good. Well, look him up, guys. He's got a lot of great stuff. A lot of if you're more people are interested in DIY filmmaking, I think you can help them with on the channel. Yes, yes. I, there's a couple tutorials on green screen actually on how to to do um, do it yourself green screens. I've done a couple music videos where I built my own green screen, shot in my parents' uh, living room. <laughs> so awesome. I got a couple good uh, videos for anyone who's interested. Great. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you, James. All right, folks. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'm your host, James Pinedo, and we'll catch you next time on Poets and Lunatics. That's life. That's life. That's what all the people say. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. But I know I'm gonna change that tune When I'm back on top, back on top in June I said that